This is CNN Breaking News. I am standing on a rooftop uh, looking out on Lviv on day 44 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead live from Western Ukraine. We start our coverage tonight with what world leaders are calling a despicable abomination, an attack committed by Russian forces against innocent Ukrainian civilians, a missile strike on a train station, a train station full of Ukrainian families because they were trying to flee the horrors of Putin's war. We want to warn you, some of the images we will bring you in our show today, they're graphic and they're disturbing. This is the immediate aftermath of that attack in the city of Kramatorsk, that's in Ukraine's east in the Donbass region. The haunting screams, the sheer panic, bodies being dragged away from the chaos, blood staining the sidewalks. The regional military governor says at least 50 people were killed, including five children, nearly 100 others wounded, including children and mothers. Ukrainian officials have been warning about a Russian advance on the east, telling their civilians, get out of there. And now it seems Russian forces have directly attacked the Ukrainians trying to make a run for it. We understand that it can be unsettling and difficult to see these images of death and destruction, but our teams of CNN reporters are spread across this country to to bring you the ugly truth of this war, because not long after this strike, the Kremlin, per usual, lied, publicly denying any involvement, calling this a provocation, falsely suggesting that the Ukrainian military was behind the strikes on its own civilians. Frankly, if we in the press We're not here to bear witness to what the Ukrainians are being subjected to by the Kremlin. Who would be? I want to bring in CNN chief international anchor, Christian Amanpour, who is live for us in Kyiv. And Christian, Ukraine says the Kremlin knew full well that the train station was full of civilians and they attacked it anyway. You know, Jake, we spoke to the mayor of Kramatorsk shortly after this attack, and he told us that for the past two weeks, at least, this train station has been the hub, the gateway for about 8,000 people per day to flee this area in the east where Russia is redirecting its offensive. So he was saying that they must have known because it has been like this with thousands of people all along. You can hear the fear and the anguish. You can see the desperate efforts to rescue civilians after an attack on this train station in the eastern city of Kramatorsk. A crowded platform hit by Russian missile strikes as people tried to escape heavy fighting. Russian forces also struck the station building itself, the head of the railway told CNN. Now, dozens are dead, including children, and many people remain unaccounted for. I asked Ukraine's chief of military intelligence for his reaction. What can I say? This is another example of criminal activity of uh, war criminal dictator Putin. It is another case that I hope that would be added to the criminal investigation against him in the international court, conducting a powerful missile strike against a civilian uh, infrastructure during the evacuation of civilians. It's an, it's an act of terrorism. In the hours and days before this attack, the station was crowded with thousands of refugees 
Krematorsk has been a hub for internally displaced people in the Donetsk region, families desperately boarding trains to escape the Russian assault. Now, body bags and abandoned luggage are all that remain. The hundreds wounded are one step further from evacuation. Painted on the side of this deadly rocket were the words, for the children. A chilling message the European Commission president tells me just strengthens her resolve to make sure Vladimir Putin fails in Ukraine. If you look at the attack today at uh, the tr uh, train station, uh, I was shown pictures where the shelling had written on uh, for our children, which means like revenge for our children. So they are building indeed this, this awful narrative as if uh, they would be uh, returning something, a, a nightmare. Russia has denied responsibility for the strike, calling it a provocation by Ukraine. But the brutality of this invasion is well documented, despite Russia's military consistently denying attacking civilians. Kramatorsk was one of the first places targeted when the Russian invasion was launched February 24th. Why do they need this war against Ukraine? Why do they need to hit civilians with missiles? Why this cruelty that the world has witnessed in Bucha and other cities liberated by Ukrainian army? On Friday, Ukraine announced 10 humanitarian corridors, including one in the Donetsk region. But civilian casualties are increasing every hour that Russia's bombardments continue. And now, as we said, Russia is redirecting its offensive in the east. And the military intelligence chief told me that what they need now is not light weapons anymore, not just shoulder-fired anti-tank weapons. They need big anti-aircraft missile systems, anti-missile systems, and even combat aircraft as well. And the EU chief, she came here telling President Zelensky that they are really going fast ahead with their accession to the EU. They're putting that in motion right now. That's a big development, Jake. All right, CNN's Christiane Amanpour, live for us in Kyiv. Thank you. As always, Ukrainian leaders say they believe Russia is nearly finished with its preparations to begin this massive military operation in the Donbass region. The Kremlin even admitted part of the reason it withdrew its troops from the areas around the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv was to bolster this massive attack on the east. Western leaders assert that the move is also because the Russian military failed to capture the capital city and other areas in the north. CNN's Clarissa Ward followed the path that Russian troops took in their ultimately unsuccessful attempt to take Chernigiv, which is once a vibrant city of 300,000 people. Now, take a look at what the Russians left behind. This is what remains of Russia's presence in much of northern Ukraine. A hastily abandoned camp by the roadside, just 30 miles in from the Belarusian border, where soldiers dug in and prepared for their advance, their foxholes still littered with their rations. So this is where it looks like they were doing their cooking. You could see some onions, coffee, some water, some cans over there. But what's so striking walking around this camp is that it's just a mess. It seems there was a total lack of discipline. Around the corner in the village of Chernish, Ludmila Stepanovna tells us residents hid their valuables as Russian forces looted the area. Five weeks they were staying here. Tanks were all around us. At night they would shoot at the houses with machine guns, she says. But praise God they didn't touch us. 
As the Russians continued their lightning offensive down to the city of Chernigiv, their tactics grew more brutal. Faced with stiff resistance on the ground, they doubled down on bombardment from the skies. Ukrainian soldier Bogdan Verbitsky shows us what is left of the village of Novoselivka, just outside Chernigiv. The scale of the destruction is jaw-dropping. Not a single house is untouched. Bogdan explains that this was the final push to get into the city. So he's saying that this was a Ukrainian position. The Russians bombed it heavily. And then Russian soldiers were actually here in this area, just a mile away from the city. Nikolai Krasnatal never saw the Russian soldiers here, but he felt the full force of their assault. This is my cellar, he says. He tells us his nephew was sheltering from the bombardment there when it took a direct hit. Pinned down, Nikolai was forced to bury him in a shallow grave in the garden. We put a cross and covered it with a shield so the dogs wouldn't dig him up, he says. I feel such hatred for Putin. I want to tear him apart. I lived for 70 years, but I never saw a beast like this. Many here fear they haven't seen the last of him. On a destroyed bridge, an emotional Tatiana and Svetlana are returning from their first visit with their parents since the war began. They're worried they may not see them again. We don't know if the Russians will come back to the village where my parents are, Tatiana says. And this is so scary. In the end, Russia's offensive in the north was a failure. But the scars of its assault remain deep, and the prospect of a return to normalcy still seems far away. You know, and Jake, the people living in those villages that were occupied by Russian forces for weeks on end, they have survived the worst of it, but their situation is still a huge struggle. These places, many of them are almost entirely cut off still. Uh, The roads are often impassable. There are many roads that are littered with mines. There are fears about booby traps uh, left behind by the Russians. And Ukrainian forces are trying to get into each of these villages and ensure that people have the supplies that they need because they still don't have power. They still don't have running water. Many of them still don't even have food. We saw people using bicycles a lot as a way to get around town because so many of those bridges were taken down actually by the Ukrainian side to avoid allowing uh, Russian forces to get closer into the country and potentially to the city of Chernigiv. But all of this makes for a very tricky and frankly quite desperate situation for these people who simply do not know when they will be fully united with the rest of the country, fully united, as you saw in the case of Tatiana and Svetlana, with their families who they continue to be apart from, Jake. Yeah, and those conditions of desperation can create real threats to life and limb of their own. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for that important report. Still ahead, another first-hand report of the horrors, this time from Bucha, as more bodies have been found in areas abandoned by Russian soldiers. Plus, a show, a demonstration of military might on the ground and in the sky. CNN gets access to joint exercises between the U.S. and neighboring Poland. 
aimed at sending a very clear message to Vladimir Putin. Stay with us. Continuing with our world lead, the prosecutor general of Ukraine says so far 164 bodies, 164 have been discovered uh, in Bucha. Uh, that's the town, of course, outside the capital of Kiev, where a massacre of civilians was discovered after Russian forces had withdrawn. Joining us now live to discuss is Kira Rudik. She's a member of Ukraine's parliament. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Kira. I want to start with your reaction to this morning's deadly attack on the Kramatorsk train station. Hi, Jake. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is one of the next level of uh, Russian crimes. I cannot even describe in words what we feel here, especially given that we as government officials advised people to evacuate uh, eastern uh, regions because we knew that Russians are coming there. And after what we have seen and in Bucha and the other outskirts of Kiev, we said, every civilian, please evacuate, because there is no way we can predict what Russian forces will do. So right now, Russians uh, are hitting where it hurts the most. They're hitting train stations where the people are trying to evacuate. For you to understand, these are not men who are evacuating. These are not even, so they, they are uh, older people with the, with the kids. It's you're, you're taking your grandmother and your children and you're saying, please go away right away. So, and have you seen that on the rocket, on the missile that hit Kramatorsk train station, it was written for the kids. How, like, what, yeah. what, how it been in the world, how it even can happen? I don't have words. I, I just feel tremendous pain everywhere when we are talking about it. It's, and you recently visited... every cruel thing that could possibly happen. You recently visited the small town of Borodyanka, which Russian forces occupied for a month. Uh, you wrote on, on Twitter that the invaders, quote, were genuinely surprised we had toilets in all houses. They also looted washing machines, stoves, kitchen supplies, jewelry, clothing, underwear to send it back home, unquote. Uh, Borodyanka itself was almost entirely destroyed. Tell us what you saw there, what you witnessed. So Borodyanka is a small town, but it really had like all the benefits of civilization. And people who survived there, they were telling that Russian troops, they were really surprised. They said, oh, you have toilet in every house. We don't have that. They really destroyed like everything. I don't think there is a, uh, uh, there is one or two uh, really buildings that are stayed intact. And uh, I was the most impressed with the kindergarten, where it was done inside with so much love, with hand-painted uh, pictures near every child's uh, bed. And it was all gone to thrashes. So the, the atrocities there are just unspeakable. Uh, you you cannot imagine like the parts of the homes that are destroyed and the other parts are standing and people are walking around uh, trying to find their loved ones uh, like under under the buildings because because the destructions are uh, they're terrible that 
uh, that the rescue teams did not find all the people that used to live there. And for many, many days, they will not be able to do that. And I have witnessed people who were sitting just around waiting until maybe they will discover a body and that will be a body of their loved ones. And it was, yeah. again, it's unspeakable pain that people are surviving right now. Uh, you've also visited, uh, you've also visited Bucha twice now. Well, you, tell us about your, your visit of Bucha twice there, because uh, local authorities are still counting the number of civilians uh, dead in the wake of the Russian forces uh, leaving. What did survivors there tell you about what they saw, what, what happened? So, you know what's the worst thing about mass grave? The worst thing is the amount of people who, who is coming there with two thoughts. On one hand, they really do hope to find their loved ones in the mass grave because they have been looking and looking and looking. And on the other hand, they do really have this small, tiny hope that they will not find their loved ones there. And then, then there would be a miracle. Then, uh, then there would be a miracle that the person will magically appear. And with these two thoughts tearing them apart, people are standing there crying and looking at every single dead body that's being exhumed from, from, from the mass grave. Would you believe the hurt and the pain that these people are feeling looking at every single dead body, hoping and not hoping that that would be some of their relatives? I have talked to women who, are being, who were raped there in Bucha by Russian soldiers. I have talked to a woman who was raped by three Russian soldiers after her husband was killed there and her six-year-old son had to witness it. And she begged Russian soldiers so she could find a place to hide her son. And they said, no, they, the apartment that she stayed at was very small. And then the worst thing that one of the Russian soldiers, he, he kept coming back on and on for the rest of the time that they were there and he told her he loved her and he said that i will take you to russia etc and she said i was so scared that he will force me to go with to russia with him and it was it's just unspeakable that people have to suffer this day after day after day after day while the rest of the world is taking their sweet time and saying okay we will have another meeting in two weeks about should we or should not we give Ukraine more weapons? And this what struck me the most is the time when you are under occupation, when you are threatened uh, for your life is going very differently than the time when you are in peace, when you are safe, when you uh, live in, uh, in developed country. It's just a different world. And this is why on day 43 of the war, we keep asking for the same thing that on the day one, Give us the weapons so we can protect ourselves, so we can fight Russia back and we can push them back from our country. Because otherwise there will be more Buchas, there will be more Borodyankas. And we don't know what is happening in Mariupol. We do know what's happening in Mariupol. More atrocity, more pain, more terrible crimes. And there will be more tragedies like in Kramatorsk. Because there is nothing right now that is stopping Russia from creating more of these tragedies like in Kramatorsk because our skies is almost not protected and we do need the protection. Otherwise yeah. they will be just hitting whatever they want with their missiles and people will be dying, civilian people. And this is why we are asking for, for that particular support for our skies. 
Kira Rudik of the Ukrainian Parliament, I hope they are hearing you all over the world, especially in Brussels at NATO headquarters and in Washington, D.C. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for bearing witness. Thank you. Coming up, incriminating radio transmissions, more intercepted audio of Russian commanders telling their soldiers to commit these horrors, these atrocities upon Ukrainian citizens. The latest recordings next. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead live from Lviv, Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say there is new audio from intercepted radio traffic revealing Russian soldiers talking about killing and raping Ukrainian civilians. As CNN's Matthew Chance reports for us now, these recordings paint a bigger picture of Russian soldiers who are inexperienced and also seemingly guilty of war crimes. Again, we have to warn you, the images you're about to see are graphic. This is a war with mass digital evidence. Every Russian atrocity could be recorded. And as the Kremlin's finding out, every illegal order potentially intercepted and exposed. Intentionally targeting civilians, something Russia categorically denies is a war crime. Kremlin blames Ukrainian forces for the devastation and the bloodshed. But hours of audio recordings said to be of Russian soldiers communicating with their commanders and released by the Ukrainian security services seems to tell a very different story. One of civilian areas laid to waste by Russian forces on purpose. And killing civilians isn't the only excess of which Russian forces are accused. Multiple reports have emerged of rape of young women, even children, by rampaging troops. One intercept records a Russian soldier in a tank regiment telling a horrified woman on the other end of the line what he knew. But these are not the crimes of victors. Time and again, Russian armour has been ravaged by Ukrainian forces amid reports of severely disrupted supply lines. And plunging morale among inexperienced soldiers, some as young as 18. Disturbed by the violence and desperate for peace so they can go home. Уебали и съебались сидеть нахуй, лишь бы нахуй не взлетело. 
Ты будешь ветераном спецоперации на Украине. Путин подписал приказ. Ветераны, ебало эти все медали. Нам тут медали, нахуй, обещали. Типа, вы каждый получите медаль, еще за эту медаль деньги. Я говорю, идите вы, нахуй, везите меня домой. Мне нахуй ваши медали. But instead of medals, there are now growing calls for those suspected of war crimes to be tried. It may never happen, but forensic teams are in Ukraine piecing together evidence just in case. Already, there are thousands for whom justice must be done. Well, Jake, this conflict continues to be absolutely shocking. It's just that the conduct of those Russian soldiers appears to be, well, I mean, it's just, it's just outrageous. Um, and U.S. officials say that the Russians are you know, doubling down on a recruitment drive, they say, to recruit upwards of 60,000 more soldiers to bolster their forces in Ukraine and elsewhere. Jake. CNN's Matthew Chance in London, thank you so much for that important report. Also today, a demonstration of military might less than two hours from the Ukrainian border. U.S. and Polish forces conducting joint live fire exercises, one of the most visible signs of the military ramp up in the region by NATO. CNN's Kyung La was there in Poland as military officials opened the exercises to the press for the first time. No words needed. This is the NATO message to Russian President Vladimir Putin. This is the first look at American troops firing weaponry on the ground in Poland since the war in Ukraine began. U.S. and Polish forces publicly showed off the might of the West in a bilateral live-fire training exercise. One by one, Polish tanks lined up heavy artillery. And paratroopers dangled from helicopters, landing on a battleground that is designed to prepare for a war just a short drive away. The 82nd Airborne Infantry Brigade Combat Team, based at Fort Bragg, has been drilling with American Blackhawks here in Poland for weeks, deployed in mid-February before Russia invaded Ukraine. As the U.S. soldiers run across the field, a U.S.-made Javelin missile launches. It's a portable surface-to-air system that's been critical for Ukrainian forces in the war. What we understand is that there are two platoons here, about 60 American troops taking part in this live fire act. It's a show of force. We're about just two hours away from the Ukrainian border. The Americans trying to show that they are indeed working with the Polish troops. This is just a small snapshot of the greater U.S. force here. A U.S. official says approximately 11,000 U.S. troops are deployed in this NATO country. They're a visible sign of a larger military ramp-up near Ukraine. A senior U.S. official tells CNN about 8 to 10 aircraft a day land at airfields near Ukraine, with weapons and security assistance material that is moved into the war-torn country by truck convoy. This bilateral drill ends with a photo op for the cameras, the two countries side by side. What is the message you're sending to Russia? We are strong. We cooperate with our forces from the all NATO. We are ready for any action. We are ready to defend our country. 
You may notice that I didn't interview any members of the 82nd Airborne. The reason why is that there is a blanket no media policy for them to talk to us. But we did spend some time chatting with them. And, Jake, just a couple of anecdotes. They've been sleeping in tents ever since they came to Poland here in mid-February. It's been very cold. They're obviously not seeing their families. But all of this is presented to us as just a part of the job. Jake? All right, Ken Law in Warsaw, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The last time there was a Supreme Court celebration at the White House, it became a COVID super spreader event. How the current White House tried to avoid a repeat at today's ceremony, that's next. In our health lead, today the White House hosted an outdoor event celebrating Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. The future justice stood side by side with President Biden and Vice President Harris, even though both have come into close contact with people who recently tested positive for COVID-19. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the president's chief medical advisor, joins us to discuss. Dr. Fauci, good to see you. Just yesterday, House Speaker Pelosi revealed that she had tested positive for COVID. That was two days after she stood next to President Biden at a White House bill signing. She even hugged him there. The CDC's guidelines define a close contact as, quote, anyone who was less than six feet away from you for a combined total of 15 minutes or more over a 24-hour period. Is that guidance still operative? Is the Biden administration saying one thing and doing another? No, not at all, as a matter of fact. The, the contact was, was, you know, certainly close uh, from the photo we saw, Jake, but it wasn't a prolonged. Besides, I think it's important to point out that the president is really well protected. Number one, he's vaccinated, boosted once, and boosted twice. It is conceivable that the president will get infected. Uh, given the BA2 transmissibility and the fact that there likely would be an uptick, but given the fact that the people who are on one-to-one -one close contacts with him are all tested before they're with the president, number two, that about 99% of the White House complex staff are vaccinated and the president himself is vaccinated and double boosted. So from the standpoint of risk, the risk is not zero and the president realizes that. But to the extent that you possibly protect him, I believe we'll be OK. But again, it is conceivable, Jake, that he could get infected. But we're hoping that if that happens, that the amount of protection he has from his vaccination and double boost that he would get a mild illness, if anything. So this is uh, something new that we're hearing from the White House. You're saying this today, uh, this morning on CNN, White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield also said that it is uh, uh, conceivable, uh, possible that the president, President Biden, will ultimately test positive for COVID at some point. She said he's just living his life. I mean, I don't want to bemoan, uh, I don't want to uh, belabor the, this issue, but He's 79. I realize it's a little younger than you, so no offense on that. But he's 79 years old, coming into close contact with positive cases. I mean, we've all been told to, to be aware of that, to, to be wary, to, to take precautions. Right. And in fact, that is correct. Right now, the level of, of, uh, of risk in the Washington, D.C. area that the president is following the CDC protocol. And that is when you have a green level, which it is right now, that indoor gathering without a mask is okay. Uh, so he is doing exactly mm -hmm. what the CDC is recommending for the rest of the country. 
And as I mentioned, it's very important to point out that he is vaccinated and boosted twice and following the CDC guidelines. Yeah. So I also wanted to mention um, the White House is very eager to talk about this new study by the Commonwealth Fund, which concludes, looking at the data, that between December 2020 and this past March, U.S. efforts to vaccinate Americans to get those needles into arms have prevented, in, according to the study, more than 2 million deaths and 17 million hospitalizations. That is empirically good news. Um, I should note that Congress just left town without approving new funding for COVID response. That's a Democratic-controlled Congress. Uh, are you worried about running into issues with testing and booster supplies? Oh, definitely, Jake. We really do need money. I mean, it's not just talk saying we need it. But, you know, over a period of time of months between now and the next several months, things are going to run out. I mean, what's going to run out is tests are going to run out. The antibodies are going to run out. The antivirals are going to run out. And, and the studies that we're doing to determine the best approach towards the next level of boosting, we don't have the money for. So, I mean, these are things that we really need to take seriously. So I would hope that the Congress, which up to this point has been very generous together with the administration in supporting what we need to do and supporting it well. But now is no time to just stop that. We really do need to get the money that's been requested. So I do hope that that comes through. The data that you're talking about, Jake, about the effect of vaccination on preventing essentially two to 0.3 million deaths and 17 million hospitalizations is just yet again another argument for why it's so important for people to get vaccinated. I mean, we know that the data when you compare unvaccinated to vaccinated with regard to hospitalization and death is striking. These data from the Commonwealth Fund underscores the importance of getting vaccinated. So if ever there was yet again more accumulating evidence of why it's so important to get people vaccinated. This is it. Yeah. Two million Americans that are still with us because of the vaccinations. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thanks so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up, the harrowing story of one group's effort to get orphans out of this war zone. Our next guest knows the risks. He's taken incoming fire along the way. Stay with us. Back to our world lead, humanitarian workers in Ukraine are risking their lives to try to save the lives of others, to try to help others. All the while, Russian bombs are exploding around them, including my next guest, Mikola Kuleba, who recorded this video. Friend, thank you so much. We are in safety now, and I have a privilege to go with two very nice kids, as I've seen weapons, shellings, they've seen everything. And now they're going to Poland. They are happy. They are happiest children in the world. Mikola is transporting children out of Ukraine in armored vehicles as part of his organization Save Ukraine. One of his transports was hit by Russian shelling earlier this week. I spoke with him earlier about what happened. Last week, uh, during an occasion, our families with children from uh, Chernigiv, from the east, um, and uh, three of Save Ukrainian volunteers died 
and three more were severely wounded uh, as a result of shelling by the Russian army. All the evacuation transport was totally destroyed. And one our volunteers from the hospital returned back for evacuation. And he, he feels not good, but he won't rescue children and families and the other in, in the hospital. Yeah. And, uh, and we thank only, only our drivers, volunteers, and all our team, because we have close 100 people who every day uh, rescuing children and families in, in combat zone. For me, it's, it's how many kids? How many kids have you gotten out so far? How many kids have you been able to evacuate so far? Oh, for all period of war, we evacuated close 20,000 uh, children and families. And uh, for the last two days, only it's close 200 children and families. Because every day, it depends on situation. And for example, in that cities we worked yesterday, now it's impossible to work because uh, it's very high risk to be, to be killed by Russians. And children uh, and We know that you're operating around the clock. Um, you, you tell, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. You were talking about people with disabilities. I, I'm wondering about yeah. what your concerns are for those people left behind. Yeah. And these people left behind, children, people with disabilities, and the elderly are particularly hard hit. They often stay in houses because they do not have the opportunity to go down to the basement to hide from enemy shellings. And people are very uh, exhausted, hungry, and many of them need medical care. They were on their verge of survival under fire for a long time. Families told me how they drank snow to cook. It's only yes yesterday one family we took from the combat zone told me about this. They sit more than one month in the basement. After all, it's a family with 10 orphans. It's a foster family. After all, uh, um, and uh, now they are in a safety place and they they can have a rest a little, and then we are we decide to to uh, leave them for per permanent living or to deliver them to Poland or Germany. Mr. Kuleba, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for the work you do. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster, and now CNN's team is the first TV crew to get access to Chernobyl since Russian forces withdrew. What did our reporters find? That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Western Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper, and I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 44 of Russia's brutal invasion of this country. We begin this hour with that horrific massacre of innocent civilians at the Kramatorsk train station. That's in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. The images we are about to bring you are graphic and disturbing 
but we feel it's important that you see the real horror of Putin's war. At least 50 people have been killed, including five children, and almost 100 people were injured, including more than 16 children, according to Ukrainian officials. This is a train station that thousands of Ukrainians use every day to flee violence, just like this in Ukraine. And now it's a place of blood-stained sidewalks and corpses and discarded suitcases. Suitcases their owners may very well never return to claim. The attack comes as Ukrainian officials warn that Russian forces are preparing for a massive operation in eastern Ukraine. Meanwhile, British intelligence says Putin's troops have fully withdrawn from northern Ukraine to Belarus and to Russia, but the damage they have left behind, the damage in their wake, is devastating. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today said that the situation in Borodyanka, a Kiev suburb, is, quote, much scarier than the horrors uncovered in Bucha. CNN is also getting an exclusive look at how Russian's troop, Russia's troops invaded Chernobyl's radioactive zone. Soldiers, Russian soldiers, may have been exposed to unhealthy levels of radiation during their month-long occupation of that region. We'll have that story in a moment. Uh, but first, CNN's Phil Black joins me here in Lviv with more on the train station attack in Kramatorsk. And Phil, I, I want to read this reaction from French President Emmanuel Macron. He said, quote, Ukrainian civilians are fleeing the worst. Their weapons, pushchairs, teddy bears, and suitcases. Now, he says, quote, dozens are dead, hundreds wounded. This is abominable, unquote. So what happens now? Well, with Russia planning a new imminent assault in the East, Jake, the Ukrainians have no choice. They must continue to encourage vast numbers of people to get out now while they still can. Today's attack proves the urgency, but it also proves the risk how dangerous it is just to try and put your family on a train and get them to safety. This report has some very graphic images, but we think it's important to show. For many who fear what is coming in eastern Ukraine, Kramatorsk station has been a gateway to safety. Crowds of people have packed its platforms in recent days, desperate to increase their distance from a region Russia says it will soon conquer with overwhelming force. Witnesses say thousands came again on Friday morning. They sought safety. They couldn't escape the war. These are the moments after a ballistic missile exploded at the station. After debris and shrapnel tore through the crowd. So many dead bodies, a person cries. Only children, just children. When the screaming eventually stopped, the broken bodies of the innocent remained. We have to hide much of this scene. Most of those lying bleeding and still are women and children. Survivors fled. We managed to contact some by phone while they sheltered together in a public building, still scared and shaken. This woman says she looked up when she thought she heard a plane, then it exploded and everyone went down. This man says he heard the blast and threw his body over his daughter. The remains of the missile that terrified and hurt so many crashed down near the station. Hand-painted Russian words mark its side, declaring the weapon's avenging purpose. It says, for the children. The author and their intent are unknown. The result is yet another moment of horror in a war with endless capacity for taking and destroying innocent lives.
So, once again, Jake, the world is blaming Russia for an atrocity in Ukraine. Once again, Russia is denying responsibility. The U.S. assessment is that this was a short-range ballistic missile fired from a Russian position inside Ukraine. The Ukrainian military says that missile was packed with cluster munitions, those small bomblets which spread out and explode across a wide area and which are banned in more than 100 countries. All right, Phil. Thank you so much for that grim report. In Ukraine's north sits Chernobyl. That's the notorious site of the world's worst nuclear disaster back in 1986. The inoperative and radioactive former plant fell into the hands of Russian troops in late February at the beginning of this war. But last week, Russian forces announced their intention to withdraw. And now we are getting a firsthand look at just how much damage the Russians left behind. No other TV crew got access to Chernobyl since the Russians invaded until now. CNN's Fred Plykin has our exclusive look. Simply getting to the Chernobyl exclusion zone is a treacherous journey. Many streets and bridges destroyed, we had to go off-road, crossing rivers on pontoon bridges. Finally, we reached the confinement dome of the power plant that blew up in 1986, the worst nuclear accident ever. Russian troops invaded this area on the very first day of their war against Ukraine and took Chernobyl without much of a fight. Now that the Russians have left, Ukraine's interior minister, Denis Monastirsky, took us to Chernobyl, and what we found was troubling. The Russians imprisoned the security staff inside the plant's own bomb shelter, the interior minister told us. No natural light, no fresh air, no communications. So the Russians kept 169 Ukrainians prisoner here the entire time they held this place. And then when the Russians left, they looted and ransacked the place. Among the prisoners, police officers, National Guard members, and soldiers. Ukraine's interior minister tells me the Russians have now taken them to Russia, and they don't know how they're doing. When I arrived here, I was shocked, he says, but only once again realized that there are no good Russians and nothing good comes of Russians. It is always a story associated with victims, with blood and with violence. What we see here is a vivid example of outrageous behavior at a nuclear facility. While the plant's technical staff was allowed to keep working, the Ukrainians say Russian troops were lax with nuclear safety. And as we enter the area Russian troops stayed and worked in, suddenly the dosimeter's alarm goes off. Increased radiation levels. They went to the Red Forest and brought the radiation here on their shoes, this National Guardsman says. Everywhere else is normal. Only this floor is radioactive. I ask, everywhere is okay, but here is not normal? Yes, he says. The radiation is increased here because they lived here and they went everywhere. On their shoes and clothes, I ask? Yes, and now they took the radiation with them. Let's get out of here, I say. The so-called Red Forest is one of the most contaminated areas in the world, especially the soil. The Ukrainian government released this drone footage apparently showing that the Russians dug combat positions there. The operator of Ukraine's nuclear plants says those Russian soldiers could have been exposed to significant amounts of radiation. We went to the edge of the Red Forest Zone and found a Russian military food ration on the ground. When we hold the dosimeter close, the radiation skyrockets to around 50 times above natural levels. 
Ukraine says Russia's conduct in this war is a threat to nuclear safety in Europe. The Chernobyl nuclear power plant hasn't been in operation for years, but of course this confinement needs to be monitored 24-7 and also there's spent nuclear fuel in this compound as well. And it's not only in Chernobyl. Russian troops also fired rockets at Europe's largest nuclear power plant near Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine and are now occupying it. Ukraine's energy minister tells me the international community must step in. I, I think it's dramatically impact, and that is the really the act of nuclear terrorism, what they are doing. Chernobyl is close to the Belarusian border. The Russian army used this road as one of its main routes to attack Ukraine's capital. The interior minister says his country needs more weapons to defend this border. Today, the border between totalitarianism and democracy passes behind our backs, he says. The border between freedom and oppression. We are ready to fight for it. And the Ukrainians fear they may have to fight here again soon, as Russian President Vladimir Putin replenishes his forces, continuing to put this nation and nuclear safety in Europe at risk. And Jake, the Ukrainian energy minister, I talked to him for, for a while after that, and he said he believes it was absolutely crazy of the Russian troops to dig those positions inside one of the most contaminated places in the world. He believes that if those forces were there for an extended period of time, and the Russians held that area for about a month, that some of them might not actually have very long to live after going through that. And of course, that doesn't bode well for the fact that the Russians still occupy another major nuclear power plant here in this country, the Zaporizhia power plant, which is the largest in Europe. The uh, Ukrainians are saying they simply believe that the Russian military has absolutely no concept of nuclear safety whatsoever, Jake. Fred Plytkin live for us in Kyiv. Thanks so much. CNN's Nima Albagra joins me now live here in Lviv. She, of course, is our chief inter international investigative correspondent. Um, let me just get your reaction uh, to Fred's report there, because you have the Ukrainian officials saying Russia's conduct in this war. Mm -hmm. Uh, is a threat to nuclear safety in Europe. And then you heard the Ukrainian energy minister say that this is basically an act of nuclear terrorism. What do you think? Well, if, what we've seen consistently with Putin in this conflict is the intentionality with which he's evoking very specific fears. When you entrap a hundred-something employees who are tasked with keeping that functioning, then you're sending, you, you're intentionally playing on the concerns that just the name Chernobyl evokes, right? The fears that people have, both historically and in popular culture. And while we, of course, are, are looking with horror at the fact that they're, they're just marching in and out of that contaminated forest, but from a bigger picture perspective, what does it say when Putin is still holding on to another nuclear reactor, right? It says to the West, I have cards still to play. And also just the callousness, not even uh, instructing the Russian troops, don't dig trenches in this radioactive dirt. I mean, the, the callousness of the, the way, look, I don't have sympathy for the Russian troops, but the callousness with which Putin is treating his own troops. Well, he doesn't care about civilians, and he clearly does not care about his own men. And that's not a particularly good tactical way to uh, engage in a conflict. Yeah. And then, of course, there was that missile strike in uh, Kramatorsk. The train station was an evacuation hub. Mm -hmm. Thousands of people left that train station. They were trying to flee. We've been reporting that for days. Ukrainian officials telling people in the Donbass region there's going to be a major military operation in the east. Please get out of there. The question, of course, was this a deliberate strike or not? At this point, I mean, it all seems fairly deliberate. I mean, it's almost impossible to not be deliberate, right? Because it wasn't just where they struck, the last remaining evacuation hub. They've also hit railway bridges to stop these 
terrified civilians from finding safety, but it was also the weapons that they used. So they used a missile. And what's interesting is that we've already heard from U.S. defense officials saying, yes, this is a confirmed U.S. Um, Russian strike. Apologies. Yeah. But they but on top of that, they put cluster munitions inside that yeah. missile. Not only are cluster munitions banned, but they also are intended to create the most damage at a time when every single morning for the last few days, thousands of people have been seeking refuge via that train station. Yeah. There's no way the message wasn't at a time when the drumbeat for investigations into Russian war crimes is growing. It sends a message of impotence in terms of the global community. You've had President Biden, you've had other world leaders saying Russia must be held to account. And then Russia does this. Yeah, and that's basically cluster munitions, for those who don't know. It's basically a professional version uh, of the nail bombs that we saw when terrorists hit the London uh, tube. Mm -hmm. um, it's just to kill and destroy as many people as possible, except it's designed by a military contractor. Uh, Nim Al-Bagar, thank you so much. Always good to have you here for your insights. Coming up, a critical port city uh, in southern Ukraine is under fire. We'll, we're going to show you what's happening on the ground, plus a former university becoming a safe haven for internally displaced people in Ukraine. We're going to show you uh, and introduce you to Ukrainians forced to leave their homes at a moment's notice. Stay with us. In our world lead, the crucial Ukrainian port city of Odessa in the south is under a strict new curfew through Sunday morning. And as CNN's Ed Lavendera reports for us now, this comes as multiple Russian missile attacks uh, struck just outside the city. We are in a residential neighborhood on the northeast edge of Odessa, Ukraine, and this has been an area targeted twice in the last week by the Russian military with missile strikes. Last night around midnight, we heard three loud explosions, followed by a barrage of air defense systems firing into the sky. Today, the Ukrainian military is saying that, quote, infrastructure facilities were struck and that several people were injured. The Russian Minister of Defense is claiming that the attack actually struck a training facility, a military training facility, for foreign fighters. Now, this is as close as we can get. Uh, the, this area that was struck is several kilometers, several miles away from where we are standing. But because of roadblocks and checkpoints, uh, the Ukrainian military officials here in this area are really blocking any kind of access to this area that has been targeted multiple times in the last week. And of course, this is an example of how the, the fight here in Ukraine is rapidly changing with this focus into eastern Ukraine and the south as well. And Jake, we should also mention that just moments ago, once again here tonight in Odessa, we heard a loud explosion uh, followed shortly after by uh, some rounds of what we believe to be uh, air defense systems firing into the air here tonight in, o in Odessa. And all of this is uh, prompting uh, a citywide curfew that will go into place uh, tomorrow night, Saturday night, and last into Monday morning. Normally, the curfews have been just in the overnight hours, but from Saturday night until Monday morning, this entire uh, Odessa region will be under a mandatory curfew. They say it's due in large part, the Ukrainian officials here are saying it's due in large part uh, to the attack at the train station in eastern Ukraine earlier today. Jake? Ed Lavandera reporting live for us from Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Yuri Levchenko. He's a former member of the Ukrainian parliament representing Kyiv. He's also 
uh, the founder of UA Help. That's an organization that provides humanitarian aid and plastic window coverings for people whose homes have been hit by Russian shelling. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. We have some photos of these window coverings that your team offers. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell us about the people who come to you that need them. Well, uh, well, basically what was happening was that uh, Kiev was being shelled and heavily bombed by the Russian forces uh, in March. And this was happening all, all across a couple of weeks. And uh, we were approached at first by people from my district, where I, where I used to be a member of parliament, uh, with uh, some sort of uh, asking for some sort of assistance to uh, to uh, help them with their broken windows, because their houses were intact, but they couldn't, they couldn't live in them because they had no windows. And uh, that's how the idea came to us uh, to buy these, uh, uh, pl this plastic covering, this plastic sheeting en masse in large, uh, large scale and hand it out to people which uh, have their uh, windows broken out. Uh, and this started in my district and just in one like a couple of addresses, but then it branched over basically the whole of Kiev because unfortunately for about uh, two weeks more, maybe more like closer to three weeks, uh, Kiev was constantly bombed uh, by rocket attacks, by artillery, uh, by uh, other uh, forms of shelling by the Russian forces. And this resulted in hundreds of housing houses uh, being, uh, uh, well, not destroyed, but being uh, severely damaged and thousands of Kiev, uh, of uh, uh, citizens of Kiev losing their windows. So, so yeah, so that's how our idea, our idea started, and we were the only ones doing it. And even it's yeah. a bit of a mm, interesting story that even even the local government, the municipal government of our mayor Klitschko, was actually giving our phone number uh, to whoever approached them uh, for this assistance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, just for people who don't necessarily understand, it, it's freezing here, uh, and so uh, in order yeah. to yeah. still exactly. occupy yeah. your home. Uh, you need to have those those uh, those window covers uh, uh, because otherwise it would be inhospitable. Otherwise, people would freeze to death. How long would it take theoretically to get a window properly replaced? Is that even possible right now in Ukraine? Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, uh, uh, it depends. It depends, of course, on the city. But if you're talking about cities which were under bombardment uh, uh, or are still under bombardment, yeah, uh, it's it's really impossible to do it currently. Uh, Kiev now is better because Kiev. Uh, uh, is no longer uh, under threat from any land forces, uh, and so the li uh, life is returning to Kiev with every day. And I mean, Ki uh, with every day, Kiev is uh, less and less beginning to resemble uh, uh, a town under under siege, so to speak. Uh, it's uh, more starting to resemble uh, the usual, the way it usually uh, looks. And so, I, and, uh, over the last couple of days, people have been able to get these services to actually uh, get their windows back. Uh, but if you're talking about Kharkiv, if you're talking about other cities which are still being bombarded, of course, uh, this uh, they don't have such services. And uh, yeah. if you're talking about Kiev two, two weeks ago, of course, you didn't have such services either. And even now, I mean, it's still quite hard, uh, quite hard to uh, get the relevant supplies and to get the relevant labor. Because uh, you have to remember that uh, uh, more than half of Kiev's population uh, was evacuated or left. Yeah. What other supplies do people tell you they, they need uh, most right now? Food, diapers, medicine? Well, I, I will, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So uh, apart from, of course, uh, so the, 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 uh, the, window, the window coverings is just one part of our, of our work, and it was actually like a, this, a separate project. Uh, what, uh, what's, what is ongoing and what people need all the time, uh, especially people which are, um, uh, let's say, uh, they're, they're not less protected, people with uh, smaller incomes, uh, uh, pensioners, uh, handicapped people and so on, uh, people need food, medicine, uh, supplies uh, for children, 
Um, and uh, this this is ongoing. We've been doing this from the beginning of March until now. This is never ending. So this is one part of our work. And the second part of our work is also helping uh, our troops at the front. Um, so, um, for example, uh, we, we started with helping members of our party because I'm, uh, I'm head of our uh, People's Power Party in Ukraine. And we started helping with members of our party, which got mobilized uh, to uh, the armed forces. But then uh, we all started, decided to take a couple of um, separate uh, brigades and help them. For example, the 43rd uh, Artillery Brigade, which was really crucial, which was really crucial in protecting Kiev uh, during uh, the worst times and now is uh, crucial in the front, on the front. And so we are providing that brigade with, for example, automobile yeah. parts uh, uh, and uh, food as well and many other things which, is nece which are necessary uh, for them to be able to protect us, uh, people, uh, civilian people. The group is UA Help. And the man is Yuri Levchenko. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Still ahead, how one university in western Ukraine is trying to help families who have been forced to flee their homes. We talked to some of these internally displaced people. Hear their stories next. We're back with our world lead every day. Thousands of Ukrainians were going to Kramatorsk train station trying to escape trying to seek refuge out in western Ukraine, where I'm standing. That was until a Russian strike killed dozens of innocent Ukrainian civilians there today. These Ukrainians were just a small number of the more than 7 million people that the International Organization for Migration says have been forced to leave their homes in Ukraine but are still here in the country. We visited a university-turned-shelter that is currently housing more than 700 of these internally displaced people from all over Ukraine. Each one of them has a unique view of this tragedy. Beneath the punching bags in this university gym in western Ukraine, those civilians able to flee their homes in the east and south and dodge the Russian military's relentless barrage are catching their breath. No one wants to be here, but it beats the alternative. And the stories they tell us reveal why they fled. We live very close to Irpin, and it was very scary. The explosions were very loud. We spent two days in the basement. The kid was very scared, and we decided to go. Anya, who once worked as a nanny, and her 13-year-old daughter, Margarita, fled Kiev on February 28th with nothing but their documents and their dogs. We had to decide, either bag or dog, and we decided to take the dogs. The dogs, too, are a mother and daughter. The mattress is on this gym floor, their home, since March 1st. The fate of so many close to Anya, friends and Margarita's classmates, unknown. I have a lot of friends, including some of them, which cannot be reached at this moment. You try to track them down on Facebook, but you see they don't come online, and it's scary. Anya has been able to connect with her husband, still back east, who now works for the local defense forces. Is he fighting? Yes, in territorial defense. And how, how is he doing? It's better not to say. They come from Luhansk, they come from Donetsk, they come from Kharkiv, they come from Mariupol, they come from Kyiv, they come from Bucha. To hear to this university, to this beat-up old gymnasium just for a safe place away from Putin's bombs and bullets. Putin is an a-hole. Yulia Laznitsa, who has called this mattress her home for one month as of today, tries to brighten 
her small part of the gymnasium floor. These are not even my things. It is hard to bear it, to have to wear someone else's clothes. That's why I like to have flowers, to somehow make it comfortable and beautiful. Yulia was once an administrator for a chain of sushi restaurants, a chain that shut down after Kiev came under attack. She fled in part because she needed to come somewhere where she could still buy vital medications for her aging mother, which she sends back through the still-functioning post office. Yulia lived once, just about six miles from Bucha, the site of so many atrocities. It is hard to speak without crying because a lot of friends and colleagues live in Irpin and Bucha. It is all impossible to imagine because it's so close and I might have known these people. She recently spoke with one of her friends, Alexei. The Russians couldn't open the cellar, so threw a grenade at the door and the girls were raped by the soldiers that entered the basement. I'm afraid to ask her more detail about it. I will know more when I meet her on the day of the victory. Her nephew's girlfriend is 18 and may have suffered a similar terror. No one wants to talk about it. Are you going to try to leave Ukraine? Yes. This 18-year-old did not want us to show his face or share his name. His parents live in a part of the Donbass region since taken over by Russians. He does not have the proper paperwork to return there. And communications from the area have been shut down. He is here with his phone and a few belongings, all by himself. My parents are not allowed to leave the Russians. His father is a local fire chief, he says. He was forced to sign a contract with the Russians. He was given a choice, either to lose all his property or to sign a contract to work with them. He was in Kharkiv when the shooting started. He spent 10 days sheltering in a subway. Then he fled here more than a month ago. He wants to leave Ukraine. But he turned 18 seven months ago, and he is not allowed to leave. All fighting age men have to stay. Mm. Yes. It must be so tough to be on your own. You're You're just a kid. Yes, it's true. But I would like not to hear all the sirens and to try and live in peace. Just 18, on his own, with nothing. Unable to talk to his family, whom he may never see again. It is difficult to imagine, but in Ukraine, during Putin's war, this is what is considered relatively lucky. Still ahead, the Republic of Georgia has become a refuge for Russians. Russians, sickened by what their country is doing to Ukraine, will take you to a Russian-owned bar where only Putin haters are welcome. Stay with us. In our world lead, the Google search, how to leave Russia, hit a 10-year high in Russia within a week of the invasion of Ukraine. It's difficult, of course, to calculate the exact number of Russians who have recently fled Putin's regime. But the exodus of activists, human rights defenders, political leaders, and just plain Russian citizens is a large and noticeable trend. That's according to the head of a pro-democracy foundation in the neighboring country of Georgia. CNN's Matt Rivers now met Russians there who left everything they know behind in search of freedom from Putin's oppression. Down a Tbilisi side street, across from a church, lies a bar called Grail, a holy place of sorts for a cold lager and a conversation. And bar owner Vikenty Alexeyev, who is Russian, says he's had one particular conversation a lot more lately. Hello, what are you doing here? I just moved two days ago. I just moved three days ago. So there's a lot more Russians coming in. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and why are people leaving? Why are people leaving? Because they're scared. We met about a half dozen such people here, but one stood out. Alisa Kuznetsova left Russia with her husband just a few days after the war began. You couldn't take it anymore after this yes. invasion. It was like an additional trigger. I, I just had to leave. The 33-year-old has long been a member of Russia's opposition in favor of democracy, she says, not Putin. This is her being arrested in 2016 while she was working as an independent poll watcher in her hometown in Russia. She says pro-Putin authorities accused her of vague elections violations and held her in detention until voting ended. But the invasion was the final straw. Elisa could no longer live in Russia. Now in Georgia, she wants everyone to know what side she's on. I'm just trying to take it in stride and signal <laughs> as much as I can. With the but... Ukraine flag there. It's a public show of support matched across Tbilisi. Ukraine flags fly all over in Georgia, a former Soviet republic also invaded by Putin's armies in 2008. Many here have deep sympathy for what Ukrainians are going through. But it's not just about pro-Ukraine sentiment, it's also anti-Putin. So look at this coffee shop door. It says, you are more than welcome here if you agree that Putin is a war criminal and respect the sovereignty of peaceful nations. Pretty clear how the owners of this store feel. Another sign at a shop not far away says in part, Putin is evil. If you do not agree with these statements, please do not come in. Many Russians in Georgia feel the same way some even taking part in recent protests where an effigy of Putin was burned. But they're sometimes grouped in with Putin and his supporters nonetheless. Over coffee the day after we met, drinking out of cups emblazoned with Ukraine's colors, Elisa says that a cab driver told her recently that she was one of the good ones because 90% of Russians should be hanged. It's not nice knowing that you're the Nazis now. Back at the bar, every single Russian told us that the vast majority of Georgians have been kind and welcoming and that they're grateful to live in a freer place because everyone we spoke to also said they'll be here for a while. I love my life there, but I'm not returning there anytime soon. And Jake, Lisa says that she either speaks in English here or she asks people, Georgians, that she's speaking to if she can speak Russian, and sometimes they just say no. According to the latest government statistics, which are back from March 16th, more than 30,000 Russians have crossed from Russia here into Georgia. And given that those figures are a couple weeks old now, that number, Jake, has almost certainly risen. Matt Rivers in Tbilisi, Georgia, thank you so much for that report. Coming up, are the North Koreans preparing for another nuclear test? The telltale satellite images ahead. Staying in our world lead, but moving east now to North Korea, the U.S. and allies say Kim Jong-un's regime could be preparing for its first underground nuclear weapons test since 2017. New satellite images show North Korea has resumed tunneling and construction activities at its remote nuclear test site. CNN's Barbara Starr joins us now live from the Pentagon with more on this. Barbara, what are Pentagon officials telling you about how soon North Korea could be ready for another test? Well, there are indications. They say it could be ready in days. Let's put up 
that commercial satellite image that we have that shows the test site in the remote areas of North Korea. You will see there that there is a new tunnel now being dug by the North Koreans, clear evidence the U.S. says uh, they see the rock pile coming from under the mountain. And this is a shorter tunnel. The North Koreans could get to the precise place they would need to detonate a nuclear test bomb underground. They could get there much more quickly. A State Department official saying that they are worried that by next Friday, April 15th, a major holiday in North Korea, that the regime could mark the holiday either with a missile launch or resuming this underground nuclear testing for the first time since 2017, within a week potentially. The Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby, earlier today offered his assessment of the situation. We're well aware of the North Koreans, uh, their efforts to advance their nuclear ambitions as well as to advance their ballistic missile capabilities. We have we have reacted to that as just recently as a couple of weeks ago. We don't need to hear threats and threatening comments from North Korean leaders to understand the the actual threat that that Pyongyang represents to the peninsula and to the region. And that's why we're continuing to uh, adjust our posture as needed. So now a waiting game. Increasing amounts of intelligence are being collected. The U.S. watching the peninsula, obviously, very carefully, Jake. So they're watching, but is there any diplomatic path there? Is diplomacy with uh, Kim Jong-un's regime dead? uh, It appears right now it's certainly not... uh, Uh, even remotely warm. Both uh, Pentagon and State Department officials say they have publicly and privately the Biden administration reached out to North Korea seeking diplomatic discussions, looking for a diplomatic path. And there is silence. They have heard nothing back. Jake. Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. Thank you so much. Coming up, soaring Sorry, soaring inflation hitting some of the most vulnerable Americans the hardest as food banks struggle uh, to keep up with demand. That's next. In our money lead, economies around the world are suffering as Putin's relentless war on Ukraine drags out. Before the war, global inflation was soaring. Now the United Nations says world food prices hit their highest levels ever in March. Back in the United States, food prices have been climbing all year, and as CNN's Gabe Cohen reports, some food banks are even rationing supplies. Sabrina Faith is a mom on a mission. Oh, this was empty. To keep her pantry full and her daughter Layla fed. It's been a doozy. No. (laughs) She's a delivery driver and part-time student in Ohio, stretched thin by the rising costs of, well, everything especially gas and groceries. In the past year, the price of milk, eggs, meat, fish, and fruit are all up at least 10%. It makes me feel insecure because I can't fail. You know, she has to eat. More than one in 10 Americans are facing food hardship, up 30% since August. A poll found nearly half of Americans are worried about affording enough to eat. Thank you. So in recent months, Sabrina's turned to food pantries for the first time in her life. It means that I'm able to feed me and my daughter. But food banks nationwide are in crisis. Demand is surging. The highest February and March that we've ever had across our 20 counties. But donations are plummeting and operating costs are way up. 
In several states, including Ohio, empty shelves are forcing pantries to ration supplies. And typically this would be completely full. With bare donation bins, Second Harvest Food Bank in Springfield is giving families 20% less food. They are not receiving one to two days worth of meals from the food bank. Every week? Every week. Whoa. Emily Lena's family relies on this food. If we didn't have this, we would probably be eating um, minimal. Feeding America's 60,000 pantries and programs are now buying 58% more food to fill the gap. They're asking Congress for $900 million to keep food banks afloat. And I'm very concerned that some of them are on the brink of closing and that without additional help that they will. Meals on Wheels is also weathering price hikes on food and fuel, with some programs cutting services or adding wait lists. Good afternoon, good afternoon. In Atlanta, around 150 seniors are in line. Come on in here. Stella Stroud got off that list three months ago. I know I was in need for food, so I'm getting enough now. This year, food costs are expected to rise another 5%, with added pressure from the war in Ukraine and a looming global food crisis. It'll stretch these programs even further. It is concerning because um, you just don't know. Along with the families that desperately need their help. I just want to make sure that we can eat. And Jake, remember, it's not just groceries and gas. Families are seeing price hikes on rent and health care, plus the child tax credit expired. So all of that, it's squeezing families and it's driving up food insecurity, just as these food banks are facing their own turmoil. Jake. Good, Cohen. Thanks so much for that report. Join me Sunday for CNN State of the Union live from Ukraine. I'll have a joint interview with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, plus a sit-down with Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and much more. That's Sunday at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern, right here on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight with more from Lviv and from our reporters on the front lines of Putin's bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you at 9 p.m. tonight. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.